1: Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album—the one that was like "You've Already Won Me Over." Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a like very of all slow. The, of all the options, in spite of <laughs> me. Like, what did we do? It's so
2: slow. Don't forget to listen to Twenty Questions on the Deadline.
0: Thank you again,
2: Alison. Thank
0: you. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
2: Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff on Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: And we're on part three of our extended series, because y'all, it's getting longer and longer as we work on it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should have known this is kind of why we were so hesitant. To begin with, uh, but yeah, we're here talking about Christianity and uh, religious trauma with the marginalized people. Um, yeah, and we're talking a lot about religious trauma, and I feel like doing the like basic building blocks to this is almost uh, <laughs> as long as everything else because we're also having to like decipher, I guess, through what specific issues. We want to talk about it. And again, y'all, it's a lot. Um, And because of that, we do have content warning for this specific episode. We're going to talk about sex, sexual abuse, uh, religious trauma, harassment. And we're going to, we mention rape, but we do definitely talk about rape culture in itself as well.
2: Yes, yes. Um, And if you haven't heard our other episodes on this, especially our last one for this one, where we introduced religious trauma syndrome, uh, please go check those out, important to this episode. Here is a quick definition from that episode. Religious trauma syndrome is the condition experienced by people who are struggling with leaving an authoritarian dogmatic religion and coping with the damage of indoctrination. They may be going through the shattering of a personally meaningful faith and or breaking away from a controlling community and a lifestyle. RTS is a function of both the chronic abuses of harmful religion and the impact of severing one's connection with one's faith. It can be compared to a combination of PTSD and complex PTSD, CPTSD. And this was originally coined by psychologist Dr. Marlene Winnell.
1: And again, we're still talking about some of the foundations that women in the marginalized community may suffer from RTS. And in this specific episode, we're actually going to visit purity culture. And y'all, this is going to be a small section because we kind of covered it before very quickly. Did not realize how large of a topic this is and could be, and it could have kept going and going and going. And as in fact, there's some specific uh, areas of purity culture that we're waiting to talk about for another section. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> this specific episode, we are talking and uh, looking into religious trauma and a purity culture. And questioning a lot about religion in general. Um, Yeah. In the last episode, we talked of the misogyny of the interpretations of biblical verses and traditions, which is still held by different sects and churches today. But today's episode is focusing, again, on the many layers of how oppressive ideas like this one, specifically purity culture and how it's presented today. Again, we did a past episode on the myths of virginity, where we dug into the misconception of purity and abstinence and how it harmed women. So we're going to do a longer look. We're going to take a deeper look uh, at it and how it relates to religious trauma. Yes, Um,
2: and from our earlier episode, we talked about purity culture as something that has been around in the U.S. for quite some time. But in the early 90s, conservative evangelists in the U.S. Protestant groups organized a strategy one person called extreme abstinence. Um, Those who advocated for this would advise girls and women to be submissive, stay away from leadership roles, conform to old ideals of courtship, uh, not being in mixed company and less regulated, And when they speak of courtship, the practice involves making sure that the interaction between women and men works specifically to pursue an intent in marriage under the explicit supervision and permission of the woman's father. And as one article explains, quote, the expectation is that pure young women will remain under the authority of their fathers until they trade it for the authority of their husbands in marriages arranged by their fathers.
1: Right. And we're going to be uh, quoting and referencing many, many articles. So we're going to try our best to make sure we're correct in pronouncing their names. But if we don't, let us know if you know. We apologize from the (laughs) 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 get-go. So speaking of, author Kayla Tricasso writes in an article written in ModernNMC.com, the origin of purity culture or the faith-based purity culture movement traces back in the 1990s. Evangelical Christians of the 1960s free love movement started having children of their own and believed that many of society's problems, such as the AIDS epidemic and rise of teen pregnancies, was due to loose morals and sexual sins, such as having sex outside of marriage. Purity culture exists prominently today in white, evangelical, Christian, Mormon, and Southern Baptist communities. According to sex therapist Linda K. Klein, which we will be talking about later on as well, who has firsthand experience growing up with purity culture, children and young adults who receive purity teachings are directed to form a commitment to God by abstaining from sex and remaining sexually pure until marriage. And, of course, we want to emphasize that purity is an abstract idea, an idea that is used to discriminate and denigrate marginalized people, very similar to uh, the white supremacist rhetoric. Um, But again, we'll dig into that later. Yes,
2: In a research piece written by the Department of Counseling and School Psychology of the University of Massachusetts, Boston, titled Decolonizing Purity Culture, Gendered Racism and White Idealization in Evangelical Christianity, they further explain... Gender and sexual control are at the crux of the ethics of purity. Unique to this movement are the types of tools and practices used to enforce gender and sexual control. Popularized modalities for circulating the purity movement rhetoric led to a sex-obsessed culture of chastity, including purity balls, virginity clubs, and ritualized celibacy pledges. The most notable of these was the Southern Baptist Convention's creation of the True Love Waits campaign, launched in 1993 and known for large gatherings of teens making public displays of their abstinence
1: commitments. I did this. I think we talked about this in that last episode. Did you do this? Did you do the True Love Waits? Oh, yeah, we did talk about this. You like walked away, yeah. didn't you? You were actually really smart. <laughs> I was just like, I'm not signing anything. <laughs> again, smart. Like it's very purple and all of that. And apparently it still exists today. I don't know. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. It doesn't seem like it's uh, a lot of the uh, articles that we found were dated. So maybe not. I think people have started to kind of shy away from that. Um, But yeah, I did it. I'm sure I could probably find that card somewhere too. Oh, (laughs) no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Anyway, and in that same article, they write, While much of the purity teachings targeted youth ministries and churches, its influence carried over into the larger culture within public schooling sectors and national funding for abstinence only until marriage, or AOUM, sex education. Which they're talking about doing again. Mm -hmm. And then actually... It still exists, I guess, in different places. They still teach that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Purity Movement's reform of sexuality in the U.S.-based AOUM sex education programs grew from the religious rights political influence as well as a rise in white Christian nationalism. Um, Yes, and this is kind of what we were referring to, but... Again, we're going to talk about that later in this segment. We're kind of trying to keep it in order, y'all. There's a lot to (laughs) dissect. But yeah, definitely. We did this at school. This was something that was at school. Of course, I think it was before school started Mm -hmm. and during lunch, but we were in the school building. Really? Yeah, yeah. And it was a public school. Yeah,
2: I, at our public school, my high school, we had, I know I've told this story before because it was so shocking to me as a kid, but. We had a lot of abstinence-only posters go up. And there was a girl in my class who went around and put up, like, right next to them, like, condo- information about condoms oh. and all stuff.
1: Wow. It was pretty good. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. I don't think anyone had that type of thought. I, I, I wish, man, I wish I had that freedom of understanding yeah yeah
2: I mean it was kind of like it was great I mean it was fantastic but it was she did have a reputation of kind of being in heavy clothes slutty Of course. Yeah. Of
1: course. Inevitably, she's the enemy. So if she's not pure, she's a slut. Exactly. Which again, we're going to dig into. (laughs) All right. And here's another quote from that paper. Uh, They write, Several key authors have contended that purity teachings characterize young men as inherently sexual beings without control over their urges or responsibility for uncontrollable sexual actions and situate young women as both gatekeepers of sex without any urges or sexuality of their own while simultaneously. Shaming young women as temptresses. This type of shame conditioning is perpetuated through the pervasive use of metaphors comparing women who are sexually active to broken teacups, half eaten candy, sticky tape covered in debris, trampled flowers, and paper hearts ripped into pieces. And yeah, did you do that? We talked about this before too. Yeah. The whole passing of the candy. We didn't do the candy. We did like the pouring of the drink,
2: the shaving of the water. Um. No, we had like a chart and somebody, I remember exactly who, uh, was like the one who was contaminated. Oh. And then wow. we all drink from the water and shared cups and because she was
1: contaminated. Wow. Yeah. I've never been through a hell house. Oh, you know what yes. I'm talking about? uh-huh. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is essentially a Christian haunted house yep. where you're going through hell mm-hmm. or how you go to hell, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think part of that is like a woman who gets pregnant and dies or someone who dies of AIDS because they were sexually promiscuous. Mm-hmm. Like I remember thinking, what the? That's this is what is this? Mm-hmm. And people who performed in it were so excited. <laughs> I was so confused.
2: I, there's one near where I grew up and I didn't go to it, but I still see billboards for it. It's still going. Uh, oh, if I visit God. home around that time. And I had a friend who went and she didn't know it was like a Christian-based haunted house. And she said she was <laughs> essentially like trapped in a room for an hour while they read Bible verses
1: at her. <laughs> People like screaming. What a shock. How awful would that be without knowing what you're getting into? You're like, I just got tricked, and I can't leave. (laughs) This is is the hell. This is is
3: the hell. The cult they're trying to pull me (laughs)
2: into. Oh, that's what I would think. Um, Well, as we talked about in the past episode, the damage left behind with ideals such as these have been immense and long-lasting. As written in another article in the Kindman.co blog, quote, to say that purity culture was and has been destructive would be an understatement. Purity culture impacted and instilled concreteness around gender roles, reinforcing the strength and masculinity of men and the smallness and submissiveness of women. Women hold immense responsibility in the ways in which they dress, act, and behave due to the belief that if men are to lust, i.e. think impure thoughts, It is due to women's dress and or actions. The assumptions that are in the foundation of purity culture are clear as well. The gender binary is important and heterosexuality is the only normal form of partnership and desire. This leaves out so many beautiful people. These hard and fast rules around gender, sexuality, and pleasure create more questioning, doubt, and isolation anytime there is rigidity with a fear-based reinforcement, there will be the aftermath of anxiety, shame, and sadness. And that is the basis of a majority of morality-based control slash fear, um, such as fear of disappointing, fear of failure, fear of burning for eternity. And for women, not only do we answer to a deity, but we have to answer to the patriarchy even if we are the ones being victimized,
1: yeah, and we're not going to talk about it too much, but I do want to point out that they do speak specifically about queerness and people uh, in the queer community, and uh, how it pretty much erases it from the conversation, and that is on purpose. Uh, when we're talking about erasure of a specific community like the queer community, it is a violent removal. Like that's I. I I think it's important that we note this, especially when we're talking about purity culture. Sex is bad enough. Queerness should not exist. Uh, And we see that today. And again, we're talking about how this is leading to white supremacies. We are going to talk more about that in our conversation about religious trauma and the queer community. Don't worry, y'all. We're we're not forgetting it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And from the research article we mentioned earlier, they write, purity doctrine teaches that reward for sexual abstinence is given in the form of a highly satisfying sex life and happy heterosexual marriage. As adolescents are taught to repress their sexual desires until their wedding night, unrealistic expectations of sex and pleasure are encouraged along with a narrative that wives would remain sexually available to the needs of the husband at all times. The passing or trading of the body of a woman from a father to husband through the wedding ceremony and the trading of a purity ring for wedding ring perpetuates the commodification of the female body as sexual property while the sexual expression, needs, and desires of the women are negated. As girls are conditioned to believe that the responsibility of purity before marriage and a successful sex life after marriage rests with them, the emotional fallout associated with any perceived failure becomes their burden to carry as well. Fear of failure is furthered as young women are taught that sex before marriage will affect their ability to give and receive love, harm their future marriages, and according to the AOUM or the abstinence program, true love waits, ultimately destroy lives. I cannot, honestly, of all the things I grew up with in Christian culture, purity was the biggest focus outside of saving souls. Mm-hmm for women. Like, I remember, I've told the story previously just about the fact that I was like, I cannot meet these standards and this constant feeling of failure, this can't be okay. (laughs) (laughs) And also the fact that because I was abused as a kid, I am now thought as impure. (laughs) What does this mean for me as a woman in this culture?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, one of those things when i look back it's kind of bizarre how you know you're kind of a young young kid and we're talking about like i can't she's going to hell cuz she already had sex and like those kind of those things we put on young people <laughs> right around this and definitely with the responsibility for women and i think it is setting women up to fail because all of the blame is coming our way And that, like, you will never feel like you've succeeded. You will always, I mean, like, that successful sex life, to me, sounds like you could just kind of fake it till you make it as long as the man is happy and you could pretend that you are as well.
1: (laughs) I mean, that's that level that we we're not talking about here, uh, but... When men still assume, again, that women cannot find pleasure in sex, they're not supposed to. Mm-hmm. so it their their opinions don't matter, as well as the fact that a lot of people firmly believe rape does not exist in marriage. And a lot of countries today still do not acknowledge that as a violation. So this is I think some states still haven't uh, acknowledged that as well because, Again, this whole idea of the sexual ownership is not of women, it is of men. So therefore, they have control of that as long as they're in marriage. Right.
4: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything, for every passenger, feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
5: Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well.
4: Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z I G A Z O O.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. And as we talked about in our
2: virginity episode, many of the scare tactics used in purity culture all lean towards the idea that it is either good or bad, heaven or hell, and typically more of a failure for women. Um, In an article written by Elizabeth Ross, who wrote her Masters of Religion thesis on purity culture, uh, she talks about the black and white thinking within purity culture and gives three specific examples. Um, And here are some quotes. Uh, is it safe or dangerous? Quote, I can only explore my sexuality in marriage, otherwise I'll be ruined forever. If I have sex before marriage, I won't go to heaven. If I'm a survivor of sexual assault before marriage, I'll never be lovable again. Purity culture demonizes all forms of intimacy and sexual activity that takes place before marriage. These beliefs can be incredibly frightening, especially when inappropriately linked to personhood or salvation. Experiences of sexual assault and abuse may intensify these fears. This approach may cause significant anxiety and difficulty expressing one's physical or emotional needs for both single and married folks.
1: Yeah, and again, this is all specifically from Ross's writings, uh, the the explanations, uh, the kind of thoughts that go in with this. So this is straight from her blog. It says, uh, the question is, is it good or bad? Black and white, good or bad? And here's some of the thoughts you might have. If you wait, sex will always be good in marriage. If I don't get married, my sexuality goes to waste. If I'm a survivor of sexual assault before marriage, I'll never be lovable again. Again, that same kind of conversation. So, quote, while marriage is not a reality for everyone, purity culture assumes that heterosexual marriage and penetrative, procreative sex is the goal for everyone. Other sexual activities in marriage, such as masturbation, oral sex, and outer course, are often debated or given less serious consideration. Singles, couples struggling with infertility or intimacy, and those who do not wish to have children may feel excluded and or feel like they failed once again or being punished. Sex is a good gift from God, but there's no guarantee it will happen perfectly every time. This doesn't make anyone a bad spouse. It simply emphasizes the human element of sex. A narrowly defined understanding of sex limits playful, honest, and consensual exploration of pleasure independent from orgasm or procreation. It may also perpetuate harmful gender stereotypes. Yes. And then
2: uh, another quote, protected or promiscuous. She wasn't wearing a sweater. She was asking for it. If I wear shorts, I'll always be labeled a slut. I was wearing a tank top. It was all my fault. The trouble is modesty can be wildly subjective. Standards for modest dress vary from community to community. This binary sets the stage for victim blaming, where sexual abuse victims are held responsible for their own mistreatment. This also does not allow men the space to take responsibility for their own sexualities.
1: And yeah, we're having a conversation about modesty all the time. It may not come out as modesty, but when we look at things like uh, state houses, regulating a woman not being able to wear sleeveless clothes or not being able to wear pants. Literally, that is a conversation of what they esteem as modesty, though they may say it's more of a professionalism, but we know that's, you know, undercover words. And that's something that we wanted to look into as well. So uh, we wanted to take this minute to talk about modesty as it relates to religious trauma and and purity culture. Um, And (sighs) when we were looking this up, All I put was modesty and religious trauma or modesty in women. And all of the articles were Christian articles teaching women how to be modest and what it meant to be modest. Like it was all in favor of modesty and trying to teach women this. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is all I'm getting. I'm going to have to reword this completely. But in that, when we talk about modesty, we also have to talk about rape culture. And we're going to get into this as we talk about it now. And as Ross, Elizabeth Ross, we just quoted, states... She wasn't wearing a sweater. She was asking for it. And the measure of violence to modesty that justifies victim blaming and even the violent act of assault on women is constant. And that's why this is so important to have a conversation on. In an article written by Faith Bochumman, I'm so sorry if I said that wrong, (laughs) titled Roses and Revolution. uh, And and yes, this was actually written in 2013, so it is dated, but still relevant. Uh, She talks about modesty in purity culture, and she writes, A special niche of purity culture is deeply concerned with modesty. The idea is... Uh, A really self-respecting woman will dress herself in a way that her body will not be the focus at all. Sermons, conferences, books, even t-shirts all advocate the notion that modesty is a prime component of sexual purity and therefore, paradoxically, desirability to the proper sort of Christian gentleman, of course. Um, And there are endless debates on what constitutes modesty. The general consensus is, however, a woman's clothing must not be too revealing of either flesh or figure, too scanty or too tight. Uh, Quibbling about inches and guidelines take up an amazing amount of time and energy among modesty advocates. But the idea is the same. Good girls are modest. And yet, and also it doesn't stop the fat phobia within the Christian community. Yeah. You would think that would be one of the reasons, but it's really not.
2: No, no. And we've talked about that before. There is a lot of morality wrapped around fat phobia in Christianity. There's a long history yes. of it. Yes, that's true. It feels like, when I, when I think about this, a lot of it does feel like, essentially, you as a woman have to you have to quote save yourself for marriage for a man but you still have to be desirable to that man like your body is still for him to consume and he needs to like it
1: right Oh, I think I've talked about it before. We talked about the author, a Christian author named Elizabeth Elliot, who disappointed a lot of the young Christian women because they looked up to her for her book, Passion and Purity. Yes, I read it. <laughs> Don't judge me. But she apparently during the conference told the women in the audience, if you aren't dressing right for your man, then you're sinning. If you gain weight, then you are sinning. If you're not being pretty every morning, then you're sinning against God and man. It was such a like, what the f- that it brought divisiveness in the community in itself. And it really crushed a lot of people's spirits, which is kind of that whole like, oh God, I believed in something and this something is killing me or really like hurting me and the, having that real- realization. It was interesting, but like things like that in conversation, when you're being told emphatically, if your physical presence is not perfect, you are a sin.
2: Right, right. And kind of that like the power imbalance of, um, oh, if he left you, it's because you
1: yeah. <laughs> you weren't dressing correctly. Right. Or you had a baby and gained too much weight. Why would you do that? Right. I would yell at someone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes. Yes. And Bo Shemin continues explaining some of the mindset behind the idea of modesty. And modesty is for everyone's protection. Men are less tempted sexually when the women around them cover up. Modest women are less likely to be taken advantage of, whether just by ogling on the street, by men pressuring them to have sex, or by rape. So the story goes, anyway. Do you feel a little judged, a little meddled with? When a stranger tells you how to dress, don't. They really have your best interest at heart. They want you to respect yourself by doing your best to control other people's reaction to your body. And they can't be held responsible for what happens when you don't dress modestly enough.
1: Uh, yeah, recently there was a youth pastor. Do you, did you see this? That went viral on TikTok because he was berating these this young group of women for wearing bikinis. And we're not talking like really scantily. Like they were just bikinis um, on a public beach and telling them they need, like yelling at them, telling them they're sinning and they need to get their lives together and all these things. And everybody's like, what is happening and then he thought it was smart and came and did a response to it. I believe he was a youth pastor, and he's very calm in a chair talking biblical stuff and being like, you know, I just had, I just wanted to protect these young women. And I'm like, yeah, why are you sexualizing and looking at these young women? Why aren't you walking away? Because in the Bible it says that if your eyes are lusting, you need to pluck them out because it caused you to sin, bruh. Yikes! <laughs> just saying. Which is, I think, what what everybody comes back with, like, dude, the sin happens first in you, like, essentially. But he does not acknowledge that. He blames the women and telling these women, uh, young girls, that this is something they shouldn't be doing, Mm -hmm. which is odd. Again, even if they were dressing for other people, it wasn't for him. Right. And uh, that's (laughs) something we come into, we encounter so many times with this stuff is it's like, but you're sexualizing them. Yeah. Do you not understand what's happening? They may feel great about themselves, and they may be feeling sexy. They're not trying to put themselves on top of you. Right. As in fact, they're minding their business, laying down and hanging out with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so go talk to your wife about why you have filled these feelings. Because he did have his wife with him, I believe. Oh. And Bo Chemin breaks down the problems with these things, saying, here's the first ugly truth. As soon as a woman falls outside the standard of what is perceived as modest, those advocating modesty culture immediately join rape culture. They shrug and say, whatever happens is on her, she's asking for it, um, and they're not actually concerned about all women, only women who are willing to conform to their standards of modesty. It gets worse. When a woman is a victim of sexual violence, it matters much less to modesty culture than to current American rape culture, how she addresses or acts. Modesty culture will assume much more likely that it is somehow her fault, probably because their standards of how good girls dress and behave are so much higher.
2: Right. And Pashemin goes on, second, both cultures have a very problematic stance on men. It's not as bad as their view of women, but it's another of the shocking similarities between the two. Why does modesty culture try to get all women to cover up? Because men, according to modesty culture, cannot help themselves. Since actually sincere Christians want their men to be sexually pure as well as their women, or at least they say they do, but of course the onus for keeping men pure is put on the women, all temptation must be removed. For even seeing a flash of skin he ought not to have seen will make a man think all sorts of lusty and rapy thoughts. That's the gist of it. I've read modesty books that go into great detail on how men's chemistry works, essentially saying that if he catches just a glimpse of a woman's body, he will be sexually turned on in an instant, and after that he is incapable of controlling his mental-slash-physical reaction. And it is only a woman's body that will create this reaction modesty culture is heteronormative to the point of denying that real homosexual attraction even exists. So both rape culture and modesty culture envision men as drooling hound dogs with everlasting erections. As a side note, modesty culture is also made up of people who think men ought to be the ones running the world and that the male gender holds all spiritual authority. And uh, it is important to recognize how something that is disguised as morality is often weaponized to Insert dominance, control, and supremacy. I find it, for instance, interesting how this really is like allowing for men to rape women and it being their fault. Uh, And they can still be good Christian men
1: because she was wearing a tank top. Oh, my gosh. Right right i mean there's definitely that conversation of who is being judged the most people away too short of shorts and again when i was a part of that christian world i definitely preached this i definitely uh, bought into this which is again why i have so many many body issues in itself and again a part of that was able to hide my body issues yeah <laughs> by by pretending it was modesty mm-hmm. i mean again self esteem all of that mm-hmm. but it to me there's so much in this conversation that we need to take a take a moment to look at and how the overlapping good intentions of discussing modesty has overlapped with rape culture and how oftentimes it excuses rape and again when we look at old testament stuff from the bible if a woman was raped it was her fault and if she was not being married if she's not married to the rapist And she had to beg for them to marry. Then she was outcast forever. Like, that's that level again. And for some reason, even though that seems so extreme, people still oftentimes will throw away, in heavy quotes, women specifically, uh, who have gone through trauma like that when it comes to religious or uh, purity cultures in general. So that's something to remember. Um, And for me... This was the crux of my service to religion, the idea of being pure uh, and remaining modest and supporting men to gain more power. Like, I was taught I need to be behind the man, literally, um, to make him the better man. (laughs) And this whole, like, the idea, uh, that, that phrase, the men are the heads... And the women are the next. all these things that supports the men. I'm like, God, that is so, why? Why do we think that that's such a great right. for, like, saying? I don't want that. Don't knit that on a pillow for me. What the hell? <laughs> oh, no, my gift. <laughs> <laughs> I would never. I would never. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that.
4: 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
5: Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well.
1: yeah, and with the stigma of purity and modesty when it comes to sex and sexuality, as we talked about earlier, there is a level of impact that can linger causing damage throughout your entire life. And here are some examples from that same Kidman.co blog. Uh, It could include feeling shame about your body and about having sex, fear of what sex before marriage might do to you, discomfort in receiving pleasure, difficulty naming needs and wants during sex, separation and distance from yourself and body, sometimes called dissociation, uncertainty around how to bring this up to other people in your life, difficulty trusting yourself and others, anxiety around a lack of agency that you have in your life. And yeah, all of those fit me. All of those fit me. Like I, maybe not the dissociation. You know, maybe the association actually yeah. no the thing about it like my initial thoughts of sex of course everything I do this sounds ridiculous I have to think about it for a long time before I decide to do it mm-hmm. so I had made up my mind that purity and this chastity that I thought was so great it was not about religion and purity and being on a uh, heavenly way it was about fear um and it was perfectly aligned with my fear and trauma previous trauma uh previous sexual abuse so therefore it was perfectly fitting because at least I could say it's for Jesus
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no yeah. yeah. I mean I do think all of these things you've listed uh, a lot of a lot of listeners and myself, I can relate to, but it, it's it's so isolating and it's so mm. you can't ask people about it, you can't talk about it, and that it's basically telling you to be submissive to the man and his wants take precedence. So even if maybe you maybe you're not sure about like do you want to have sex or not, if he pressures you though, then it's it's like almost telling you, well. My religion is saying he's the man, and if that's
1: what he wants, then that's what he gets. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what he wants and what he gets, no matter how comfortable and uncomfortable you are. And if you're the one saying no, then you are uh, sinning against man. Right. Your authority, once again. Mm. (laughs) Yep. Um, But... These
2: aren't the only types of trauma reactions. Um, More often than not, many of those who have suffered trauma due to the purity culture suffer from sexual dysfunction and fears. The anxiety brought on by shame and guilt after years of being told that your worth is your body slash your purity, the undoing and unraveling of those ties can become a process and even dangerous to your mental health. In a Vice article talking about Linda K. Klein's book, Pure, Inside the Movement that Shamed Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free, which we mentioned earlier, um, they discuss the severe impacts of the purity culture and physical and mental side effects. Here's a quote from that Vice article. It's teenage girls who end up most affected, Klein finds, because while boys are taught that their minds are a gateway to sin, women are taught that their bodies are. After years of being told that they're responsible for not only their own purity, but the purity of the men and boys around them, and of associating sexual desire with depravity and shame, Klein writes, those feelings often haunt women's relationships with their bodies for a lifetime. And she goes on to explain her own experiences and trauma. After realizing she couldn't be the woman the church wanted her to be, it was at that point when she began considering having sex that the symptoms started. It began when I took the possibility of having sex and put it on the table, Klein says. From that point on, sometimes it was my boyfriend and I being sexual that would make me have these breakdowns where I was in tears, scratching myself until I bled, and ended up on the corner of the bed crying.
1: Right. And I think it's really important. We we definitely want to look at that a little deeper, Having that conversation that this is traumatic. When we talk about CPTSD and PTSD, this is an actual reaction that comes out physically. Uh, For me, I didn't have that initial reaction when I first had sex. What I wanted to do is get it over with, not tell anybody and never talk to that guy again. But there was definitely a lot of shame factor to this because... So many reasons, so many reasons, and part of that is my own past trauma, part of that is trauma with religion, and part of that is, like, trying to say that I'm an adult. Um, So many bad things. But this emphasis on sex, which you and I have talked about before, uh, has really damaged in every way, like, to the point that we hope consent is a conversation that we can have, because doing that, what I did, was also an awful way to start off. Right.
0: Right.
2: Right. Um, and we, we have talked about that before, like if we don't feel comfortable saying no, then is there any, how, what is true consent? I think that I too, I have a journal entry where I, I felt bad even before the sex part, if people were attracted to me and I wrote a whole journal entry about how I felt like a monster and my body was monstrous and why did it keep this keep happening and it should be like a nice thing. It should be like a oh right. somebody's attracted to me. But instead I turned
1: it inward and felt horrible about myself. Right. Right. And again, this is something that we have learned or we've been conditioned to do. And obviously. Klein wasn't alone. And she started gathering a lot of data, which, by the way, this is around the same time frame that I was doing this. Like her time frame is my time frame. And I feel really old <laughs> doing this research. <laughs> but that's OK. I'm fine. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> but she started gathering data in 2006 and she wrote in her book Based on our nightmares, panic attacks, and paranoia, one might think that my childhood friends and I had been to war. And in fact, we had. We went to war with ourselves, our own bodies, and our own sexual natures, all under the strict commandment of that church. And that's exactly kind of that level of what I'm talking about is I wanted to get it over with so quickly as if it was a war, as if I was going to battle and get it out and get it done um, because I hated That beginning, uh, like because I wanted to break free so badly from that religious trauma and that standard that I did it that way. And it was not healthy. And then, yeah, going on her research shows without a doubt that traumatic effect uh, of this type of culture. Uh, Here's another quote from that article. The resulting book is an eye-opening blend of memoir, journalism, and cultural commentary that masterfully illustrates how religion, shame, and trauma can inform one another. Citing medical studies, she lays out that evangelical adolescents are the least likely to, quote, expect sex to be pleasurable and among the most likely to expect that having sex will make them feel guilty. And in comparison to boys, Klein observes girls are 92% more likely to feel shame, especially girls who are highly religious. For many women, like Klein, that shame can manifest in physical symptoms. Right. In
2: another blog, author Jenna Dubois writes in her article titled Religious Trauma Plus Painful Sex, uh, the human body has an incredible memory. Even if someone doesn't have a history of physical or sexual trauma, the trauma of hearing their body is terrible and not for their own pleasure their whole life begins to manifest in some pretty profound ways. Sex is a very somatic experience. Especially for women, penetrative sex is more pleasurable and comfortable when the body is relaxed, which is extremely hard to do if your sexuality has been shamed since childhood. Combine that with the lack of sex education in religious communities, i.e., condoms, lube, clitoral stimulation, and penetrative sex can quickly become less than desirable. And she goes on to further explain. Sex is also very mental, and there are two very significant ways that religion hurts people, specifically women, by not teaching them their bodies are theirs and for their pleasure. And here are some direct quotes from that. If you are taught something is bad or wrong your entire life, but expected of you during marriage and not for your pleasure, only procreation, well, let's just say that's not the sexiest setup for a pleasant, relaxing sexual experience. For women, sex is expected. During my experience in Christian culture, I experienced many of my friends getting married and getting married very young. The conversations for men around sex slash marriage were generally filled with excitement. For women, it was more complex. The wedding night in Christian culture is massive because it automatically insinuates sex. And usually for a lot of Christian couples, this is sex for the first time. So there's a lot of pressure, usually and mostly, on the women. I believe that this expectation, even if it's unspoken between partners, makes sex more difficult for women. It also feeds into the belief that their body is never for themselves, but for everyone else as a woman. And it's only good when it's of service. Obviously, this is far from the truth.
1: Right. And uh, again, because I grew up in the world... I had a lot of friends getting married, if not during college, immediately after college uh, because they did not want to wait for sex. As in fact, I have family members who did that um, because they just didn't want to wait. Uh, That was the whole reason that they got married, thinking that their sexual lust for each other was obviously a sign and that they were supposed to be together. Again, the courtship thing, there's more to that. Like, don't think that that's the only reason, but it was a rush to get married. They wanted, they didn't want to wait uh, type of conversation. And and with that, they, <laughs> there was a whole loss of kind of like experience and understanding. And many, many of them came in blind. Don't get me wrong. Several of them were like, yeah, it was great. But it took a lot of learning and it took a lot of a breakdown in their conversations, meaning they did not have an actual talk about sex until much, much later than when they actually had sex. So it was so, so sad to me. And for those that were lucky, that was like, oh, we love sex. Amazing. That's, that's great. Mm-hmm. Good on you. Um, but that was rare mm-hmm. that I could see. Of course, they also, these friends also wanted to paint marriage as perfect. Mm-hmm. Because, again, if it's not perfect, then they have failed. And, again, the women have failed. And then also, like, a lot of... it, Finally, people have finally kind of realized how tiring weddings were. Yeah. So many of them finally admitted they weren't having sex. Like and they're like, we just crashed, okay? Yeah. Which happens. I've That's always felt that pressure. was strange. Yeah, like... Yeah. We all know they're having sex. That's just
2: strange right. to me. I mean... <laughs>
1: I, I get it in the sense, of like old school ways, you really weren't married until you consummated the mm-hmm. ra- marriage, which is, again, real sexist. <laughs> uh, but that's not a thing anymore. So I don't know why we put pressure onto that. Yeah. That makes me sad. Anyway, (laughs) and from that previous article we talked about, Klein, uh, she expands on it and says, uh, Klein observes and cites an expert who found that many women who grew up in purity culture and eventually began having sex report experiencing an involuntary physical tightening of the vagina, also known as vaginismus, that is linked to a fear of penetrative sex and makes intercourse extremely painful. And yes, I've had friends experience this. You know what? Actually, I've experienced it too. Too much information, I understand. But like when you are (laughs) pressured into things or when Mm -hmm. you feel like you have to do things and you're not relaxed and then you're thinking about all the things that are bad, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it doesn't go well. (laughs) And the testimonies from many women who have grown in this type of environment is telling. Uh, Here's some uh, quoted testimonies in that article. One woman she spoke to described having years of awkward, uncomfortable sex with her husband until she began to feel overcome by such extreme exhaustion. She had difficulty getting out of bed. Another shared that after her first sexual experience, her body began to shake uncontrollably. Um, In one extreme account, a woman said that the feelings of panic and guilt flooded her mind, quote, like a cloud of locusts after an early sexual encounter. Soon after, orange-sized welts broke out on her arms, stomach, back and breast, and it became difficult to breathe. After jumping into the shower to find relief, whilst the size of both of her palms formed on her vagina. Uh, Quote, I would say it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life, she told Klein. I had no idea what was happening to me. My legs, my face, everything was bright red. It felt like I had absolutely no control over this horrific, nightmarish things that were happening to my body. That woman was rushed to the emergency room, and though the doctors told her she went into anaphylactic shock, they couldn't explain what caused it. Um, again, while she knows something medical happened, she told Klein that she is certain that something spiritual happened to her, as well as the result of so- what happens when you tempt Satan, which I'm like, oh, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many things, because honestly, and we're going to talk about this in Motherhood and... Uh, the Christian Ideal of Mothers, which is another episode. Y'all, I don't know how many episodes we've got. There's so much. But I've had friends blame miscarriages on their previous sexual encounters of being uh, sexually promiscuous. And that was something that broke my heart. That, that would They would take on that blame and they would literally apologize and grovel to their husband because they said, I sinned against you. These are words. I sinned against you because I had sex before you. And I'm just like, oh. What a horrible God yeah. <laughs> that would that would use that
0: mm-hmm.
1: against just women
2: yeah that's
1: it's heartbreaking, and
2: uh as more and more people are talking about the effects of religious trauma and purity culture, there are still those who are holding tight to these traditions and even trying to change with the times as the world started to become more sex positive, those in conservative churches continued to preach morality, again disguised as protecting women. In another Vice article written by Scout Probst, Um oh, I hope I didn't butcher it, uh, titled, How Young Evangelical Women Are Navigating a Sex-Positive Internet Gropes look into a group called Girl Defined and how they are talking to young women. She writes the, quote, highly visible online ministry Girl Defined, a collection of blog posts, videos, and instructional books aiming to provide mentorship to young Christian women. The name refers to Beale and Clark's foundational message that one must work against the odds to be a God-defined girl in a culture-defined world. And the founders, Bethany Beale and Kristen Clark, who have been in the influencer world, and sisters have created a network focused on issues that matter to high school and college-aged
1: girls, namely sexual politics and temptation. Right. Uh, Yeah, and within their focus, they advertise a community of like-minded young women who can come together with a redefined idea of purity. And from that same article, they describe the organization like this, As with all sin, falling short of the model of purity, physical, emotional, and spiritual is seen as almost inevitable. That does not change the fact that it is the model. The ultimate sexual freedom in the ministry of Girl Defined comes when one acknowledges this losing battle and chooses to pursue abstinence anyways. So you get a little more leeway. A little, 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 more, little more forgiveness. Um, and apparently they do a lot of retreats, and they had one recently. And in a recent retreat, while on stage, the founders reiterate the, quote, importance of submission in a world that has fetishized women's independence and self-sufficiency. I feel like they don't know what fetishism means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Maybe glamorized
0: is what they were going for.
1: <laughs> we're going we're gonna to keep it. Anyway. <laughs> um, and the evolution of relevance or perhaps counterculture and, if you will, has always existed. I, I laugh and I chuckle a little bit because I was a part of this, y'all. I was part of this. I admit it freely. This was my early 2000s upbringing in leadership. In church, uh, their need to grow and expand with the changes. And uh, it's nothing new in the big C church, you know, the big C, mm-hmm. the capital C. Mm-hmm. Uh, developments like retreats. Uh youth groups have always been a catalyst for movements like Purity Movement, which is what we talked about previously about going to camps and what they can do, how they're just focused on it. When we talk about uh, praise and worship, which is kind of a newer thing with like full-on bands. I know recently, I believe, I saw a video where they had the musicians flying in from the back oh, to the my. stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is a church group. This is yeah. a church group. Yeah. But they really are like trying to amp up entertainment mm-hmm. within the church culture. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say that. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I went to a very, very small church, extremely small. But most of my friends went to bigger churches, and one of them mm-hmm. invited me to her church once, and it was, I think it was middle school. Uh, and she was in a band, a metal band, I oh. might say. And she was playing at the church that night. And I remember just being blown away like this is not like my church.
1: <laughs> oh. Did you not get into all the like big rock star groups of oh, the Christian the, groups? Yeah. Like technically POD. Yeah. Yeah. Evanescence. Yeah. Evanescence. Which I think they're like complete opposite now. I feel like these bands have grown with us. I think there was a couple of bands that I was like, oh, they're Christian. And they were like, hell nah, not anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's some real embarrassing, like, white boy raps in the Christian world that I'm like, why did I think this was cool? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was super cool for me as a teenager, I guess. Being able to find that type of music that talks about Jesus. Yep, 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 yep.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. My face is turning red.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too.
4: Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury
2: Well, and much like the movements in these churches, their singular focus remains on cis-white heteronormative groups, and this is not by mistake. Um, earlier, we quoted from the article Decolonizing Purity Culture, but we wanted to share this from that article too, quote, Christian nationalist ideology has historically had racialized and imperialist underpinnings, suggesting that the resurgence of Christian nationalism in the public sphere, such as AOUM, served to buttress notions of white purity and systemic non-white exclusion in American social life. The knowledge vacuum created by AOUM disproportionately impacts WOC due to its association with decreased access to sexual and reproductive health decisions. Additionally, AOUM affects WOC differently than their white female counterparts due to the perpetuation of racialized tropes of hypersexuality and presumed inherent sexual knowledge
1: specific to Black and Latinx students. Right. Um, And when we say... WOC, we're talking about women of color. Mm -hmm. And they continue as they address the intersectional erasure of women of color. Uh, While there is clear evidence of the harms perpetuated by purity culture, there has been a dearth of empirical research and literature that includes the experiences of women of color in that discourse. To date, participants sampled within the empirical literature are disproportionately white-slash-European-American and assume that since purity culture is primarily a product of white evangelicalism, communities of color are not impacted to the same degree as white women. However, as noted above, the religious right and white evangelicalism have been a dominant influence in the cultural and political makeup of mainstream North American society. This largely and disproportionately impacts communities of color through various intersectional forms of oppression, both locally and globally.
2: Quote continues, um, Given that white evangelical narratives greatly influence how we discuss race and sexuality in the U.S., centering white women's experiences within purity culture perpetuates a colorblind racial ideology. This ideology is a modern form of racism that relies on color evasion i.e. denial of racial differences and emphasizing sameness and power evasion, i.e. denial of racism by emphasizing the belief that everyone has the same opportunities, which has been shown to reinforce racial prejudices and or inequality.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this before. Uh, how research is inherently focused on the heteronormative data, which draws a distinct line about what demographic is worth counting, while erasing all the marginalized communities. Um, and yeah, here's more from that research in Anderson's uh, formative book, written in 2015 on Christian purity culture, called "Damaged Goods: New Perspectives on Christian Purity." They called attention to the evaluative differences within its modesty culture, illuminating the ways in which modesty was created for white able-bodied and is applied to the bodies of women of color differently. While all women suffer from objectification and sexualization, black women receive the brunt of the sexualization due to their simultaneously blackness and femaleness, which reflects on the unique ways gender racism is perpetuated within and woven throughout purity culture and its teaching black women's bodies are sexualized by both women and men in ways that white bodies are not and this is a distinct privilege that white women have and we definitely wanted to add all of that to this conversation because we can't ignore the intersectionality of these types of traumas but it is on a deeper level on different points, and who is seen once again as being worthy of having that conversation and uh have getting getting treatment from it. Because right now, the reason we have so much content uh, in the last 10 years, last 20 years, there has been a focus in treating what is RTS since Dr. Winnell came out with her own experiences talking about how to to go come away from the dogma of. Uh, Very, very, very uh, deep religion, um, theological teachings, I guess, when you're indoctrinated uh, by a lot of this. Because this works on an emotional, physical, and a mental level that is completely different uh, from your other types of conversations, even teachings. Um, And yeah... This has been a long episode. We know there's so much that we could address. Uh, We haven't even talked about the treatments that are uh, available, if there is, and what people would recommend. There's a few different types. Counseling is definitely good. Um, I think it was important for us to note the extent of how these types of traumas do affect people and why movements like the purity movement, purity culture can be and is still very, very damaging. And it kind of looks like we're going back into it and it makes me very, very, very sad and very, very, very scared. Um, But our Gen Zers, man, they're killing it with like trying to find (laughs) you. the truth on all of this. Um, and there's some things that we haven't talked about. Again, we do want to address uh, purity culture and, and queerness. And we're going to talk about queerness and in, in religious trauma. So we'll put that in, in with that conversation. We are going to talk about uh, women um, specifically in Christian culture that are married, married women um, and the types of abuse and trauma that they suffer because of how it's set up, as we talked about, the misogynistic and patriarchal ideals of what Christian morality is, um, especially from the westernized point of view, especially from that Christian nationalist point of view. We're getting there, y'all, but it's a lot. It is. It is.
2: And like you said, we knew it would be. So that's why (laughs) we put it off for months and months and months. (laughs) Um, But here we are and we'll, we'll... be back with those episodes. There is a lot more to address. In the meantime, listeners, if you have any thoughts about this, uh, any resources, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram and TikTok at Stuff I've Never Told You. We're also on YouTube. We also have a book coming out. You can pre-order it at shouldreadbooks.com. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Christina, our executive producer, Maya, and our contributor, Joey. Uh, thank you all. Yes. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff on Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
4: Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury.